Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Hello and welcome to Daily Dot Differently. Jeremy Kalmanowski with you again, continuing Tractate Yivamot. Now we're on to page 90 or page Sadiq, and we're going to continue the conversation that we began yesterday about the sage's self-conscious assertion that under certain limits and in certain circumstances, they themselves have the power, koach la'akor davar min to take to uproot a law from the Torah. We saw yesterday that the sages in certain rare cases arrogate to themselves the ability to say that a given sanctified food, which technically counts as truma, the priestly gift, is actually not truma and will be treated in unsanctified ways. That somebody who might not be permitted to marry a given woman because of her questionable lineage might, according to at least Rav Chizda, be permitted to marry her, and that would be certainly a strange a strange outcome and very bold for the rabbis to, to permit what the Torah forbids. It should be said, by the way, that, that Rav Chizda is countered by his teacher that he's wrong about that point about the Mamzeret, but that's, that certainly is Rav Chizda's position, and it's one that the Talmud will keep pursuing and, and continues to find compelling. We learned yesterday, although we didn't discuss it in the recording, that the rabbis will also manipulate certain laws of inheritances for a minor bride. Now, nothing grosser or weirder for a modern ear than to hear that a, a, a minor, 9 or 10 or 11 year old girl, could be married and, and have a, a, a matter that's worth discussing in terms of inheritance law. Some other matters worth discussing before you get to inheritance law on that point. But it's just a fact that in ancient times, and even into modern times in certain Middle Eastern countries, young girls were married. There was recently a photo exhibit from Yemenite Jewry from the, the 1920s and 30s, photos that were taken in Sana, and one of the pictures, very vivid picture, was of a 10-year-old bride. I had a famous neighbor when I lived in Jerusalem who told me she had been married at nine. Thank, thank heavens that's not the world we live in, but anyway, it was the world that they lived in. And, uh, and so the rabbis were willing to manipulate the inheritance rules surrounding young brides to take what belonged to her family of origin and assign it instead to her husband's family. Why is that not stealing? Well, because the sages consider themselves to have power over uh, to make such determinations, even if it flouts what the Torah says. Now, admittedly, the Talmud also offers another explanation for it, but it's no less daring that the sages have the, the right to assign property to whom they wish and to, and to uh, remove property from one person's ownership to another. Today, the same conversation concerns, again, with examples from uh, from truma, the gifts of sanctified food, and again with the same theme offered, that, that food which, according to the Torah's rules, Rabbi Meir says, which, according to the Torah's rules, is truma, Rabbi Meir says, just is not truma, and he's, and he's willing to oker davar minat Torah, to uproot something that the Torah says is true and, and not apply it. There's an interesting literary style to this entire sugya, Rav Chizda, who is arguing for the sage's power to uproot something from the Torah, will bring example after example to his teacher, Rabbah, who deflects them. Rav Chizda says them face to face to Rabbah. He, he, he brings example after example to prove his point, and Rabbah deflects them. He sends them. They're not even in the same place, and he sends 
uh, some sort of letter or a messenger, like, like primitive responsa literature, a question and answer. He argues over and over again why this ought to be true, uh, despite his teacher's deflections, until we get an interesting new idea at the very bottom of the olive side. There's yet another one of the examples is brought. There is a case where, given the, a mistake in ritual practice, uh, an animal sacrifice is brought but is not to be eaten. The sages ruled that it ought not be eaten, but that's a mitzvah. You're supposed to eat the sacrifices. In this case, according to Rav Chizda's position, sacrifice ought not be eaten. That seems to be another case where the sages ruled that the Torah practice should not be followed. And Rav is said to answer to him, Shev ve'al ta'aseshani. There is a difference between ruling something uh, that is forbidden, that uh, ruling something that is forbidden and saying it ought to be done, versus passively saying that something ought to be done uh, can, be, can be ignored in this particular case. The failure to do something positive is different than the permission to do something that would otherwise be negative, according to Rava. Rav Chizda responds oh, at the top, of the, uh, the top of the bedside of the page, Oh, I had so many examples, and now you have, uh, you have stolen them all from me. I was going to point out that there are any number of cases where, the, where our halacha uh, permits one to ignore a positive mitzvah at the sage's discretion, uh, and that, that seems to be dispositive evidence of the idea of oker uh, davar min ha-Torah. But Rabba's position is that it's one thing to permit you to ignore a positive action, and quite another thing, which he does not agree in, not agree with, that, that permits you to do something which would otherwise be forbidden. But the Talmud has one more trick up its sleeve, a very powerful one. It points out that in the Book of Kings, a famous story, the prophet Elijah uh, offers sacrifices on Mount Carmel. Well, the Torah also prescribes that you're not allowed to offer any sacrifices after the temple is built, any place but the temple. And Elijah does live after the temple is built. So how is it possible that, that he can uh, offer sacrifices where it ought to have been a forbidden location? That certainly is not a Sheva al-Tase. That is not a passive ignoring of an otherwise requirement. That is an active performance of what should not be done at all. And somebody, in the rabbi's mind, the rabbi's permitted, or God permitted uh, him to violate this otherwise valid norm. And the Talmud's answer is, Lemigdar milta shane, to, to repair a breach, or to literally to build a wall, or to respond to some sort of rare, emergency, exceptional circumstance, it was different. And the Talmud does believe, and we'll quote again on our page, that sometimes emergency situations call for emergency measures, and Elijah was not changing the norm. He was not denying that the norm is you should never uh, sacrifice outside the Beit HaMikdash, the temple. He was simply saying that this was an emergency case. Parentheses, we modern people know that uh, when Elijah lived, it probably wasn't such a norm. But the rabbis certainly didn't know that. The rabbis uh, accepted that Elijah, in his time, practiced by the, what would become later the halakha. But uh, in Elijah's time, it, it actually probably wasn't the halakha itself. Close parentheses. Our page will continue with one more very interesting example. Interesting, I think, for modern people because it's all about, uh, about gender relations and marriages for an issue that's very salient in our days. Uh, we've been talking about the sages' own self-conception that they can manipulate the Torah's rules. And one of the ways that they used to do it in ancient times had to do with marital law. The rabbi's principle is that 
uh, rabbinic authority undergirds any given marriage, and they can annul them when necessary. Now, you may be aware that plenty of women in, in the Orthodox world, the Orthodox community here in the 20th and 21st century, re really back through the, you know, 19th, 18th centuries as well, rabbis were very, very, very hesitant to do anything to compel a man to give a get, to, to compel a man to give a divorce to his wife, and so women were sometimes left agunot, or chained up, if their husbands wouldn't divorce them, and they couldn't marry anybody else either. Nowadays, in the 20th and 21st centuries, and also in, in previous centuries as well, rabbinic sages would often labor to try to find a reason to free an agunot, but they're not maximally activists. In fact, they, they're often quite quite uh, restrained. Well, back in Talmudic times, it wasn't the case. Back in Talmudic times, as our page will say, um, if a man tries to yank his wife around with respect to a get, if he issues a get and then tries to annul it, the rabbis, the rabbis simply annulled the initial marriage. Uh, that's something that contemporary conservative rabbis uh, in rare, rare cases, a conservative national bacon, your, your local conservative rabbi won't do that, um, uh, but the national conservative bacon will sometimes do that, and I think you'll see in, in the future perhaps liberal orthodox rabbis following a liberal, liberal orthodox rabbinic authority, not your individual rabbi, but, but rabbinic institutions, perhaps re-adopting that ancient uh, approach to annulment but it will certainly be a very controversial approach. Needless to say, to the left of conservative rabbis, reform and reconstructionists, they have more or less done away with the necessity of religious divorce. They have their own kinds of processes of religious divorce, but they consider civil divorce to be uh, to be religiously valid for concluding the prior marriage. All right, thanks for learning today's page with me, and I look forward to learning with you again tomorrow. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Chorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.